Father, thank you for your word and for the examples of so many people who have come before us. And um, I pray that you would give me courage and give us courage by remembering how people have lived their lives, um, the choices that they've made to to be faithful to you, not because it was easy or not because it was safe or not because it always even made the most sense, humanly speaking, <coughs> but because they <coughs> loved you more deeply than they loved anything else or anyone else. So please encourage us tonight and um, pray that I won't get in the way of what you want to say. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to look tonight at um, the passage from Acts that Leslie read. And uh, this is a fairly well-known passage um, where Paul gives a sermon on, the, on Mars Hill. Mars Hill refers to the Areopagus, um, kind of Roman versus Greek techno- terminology in terms of what they named it. But before we get to verse 22 where we find Paul in the middle of the Areopagus, I want to do a little bit of setup and a little bit of context. So Paul used to be Saul. You may remember uh, him from a couple of weeks ago when Stephen was being stoned to death. It was Saul that was standing there and people laid their outer garments or their cloaks at Saul's feet. And it said that Saul was approving of what was going on. He was uh, had no problem with Stephen being stoned to death. And so that's Saul who was born a Jew of privilege, became a Pharisee, and spent a good deal of his early life persecuting the Christian church. And so it wasn't a rare occasion that he was there looking on or observing when Stephen was being stoned. In fact, he chased Christians down and dragged them into court or threw them into jail or authorized or supervised the execution of Christians. That's kind of what he did. He was a man who lived kind of in a rage until on the road to Damascus, he was struck down and blinded and met Jesus. And this is when Saul becomes Paul. You can read about that conversion experience in chapter 9 of the book of Acts, just seven, eight chapters before. And he almost immediately, I mean, he is stopped in his tracks And having been going this direction, he plants that pivot foot and he goes in exactly the opposite direction. And now he's traveling and preaching Jesus, Jesus crucified. He's preaching the resurrection of Jesus. And so that's his life from there on. And he uh, makes some tents, sells some tents, but mostly he's traveling and he's preaching and um, getting in and out of jail. So that's... (laughs) That's the individual that we're looking at in this 17th chapter of Acts. Um, In chapter 16, just before this, another well-known event in the Bible, if you're familiar with some of these tremendous Paul stories, they're in Philippi and they're in jail. And the jailer, the Philippian jailer, is, is converted at this point because there's an earthquake and all the jail cells open. Um, Paul and Silas, you remember, were singing in the middle of the night in jail, and they weren't just, you know, on a cot and the cable TV had been turned off for the night. They'd, they'd been pursued and beaten and thrown into a jail that's nothing like jails as we understand jails now. 
And yet, in the middle of the night, they were singing, and they were singing praises to God for the privilege of being able to be in jail because they were preaching Jesus. Okay, so this is a pretty serious character, pretty committed guy. Paul. This is who we're talking about. So in the beginning of chapter 17, we find him in Thessalonica, and he goes into Thessalonica, and he's preaching in the synagogue in Thessalonica. It says, for three Sabbaths, so roughly three weeks in Thessalonica. And Paul is going to the synagogue to preach to the Jews. Um, the Jews, you remember, some Jews were okay with Jesus' announcement that he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah. They were okay with believing in Jesus. They were okay that Jesus had come into our experience to establish the kingdom right then and there. But there were many, many other Jewish people who were not satisfied with the kind of Messiah that Jesus presented himself as. They rejected Jesus. Some of them were, in fact, responsible for riling up people and creating the stir in society that led to his trial, led to his being condemned to death, and led to his being crucified. And so Paul, being one of those people who had previously persecuted the church, now, after his conversion, he's going to the synagogue and he's saying to some Jewish people who are believers in Jesus and some Jewish people who don't care for Jesus, he's saying, look, in essence, I was you. I was born Jewish. I was born a person of privilege. I was educated. I began to climb the spiritual and social ladder. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a good Jewish boy. I did everything right. But I found out I was wrong. So if you're one of those good Jewish boys in the audience, in the synagogue, and you hear him say, I'm just like you. I did everything right, except I was completely wrong. You can imagine how that message was received. So after a few Sabbaths in Thessalonica, um, Paul gets kicked out. He's asked to leave town. And so some of these Jewish people who didn't like Paul's testimony, some of the same people or the same attitudes that led to the crucifixion of Jesus kind of reached out, contacted some hired thugs probably for lack of a better term and said look let's get the city boiling a little bit and so they did and the accusations were made against Paul that he was stirring up the city and that he was a big problem that he was dangerous that he had dangerous ideas and he's run out of town so that's the first part of chapter 17 run out of Thessalonica and then goes to Berea which is probably 45 miles or so away and we read about Paul, and we think that Paul just went from place to place to place to place as if he had a private jet, and he would touch down, and you know, crowds of screaming fans would meet him at the airport, and his shows would be sold out. You could scalp tickets and double your money for one of Paul's shows. And he would go, and he would take the stage amidst roaring applause, and he would be received well, he would be worshipped and adored, and he'd be set off with best wishes on his way to the next town. But the fact is that he was very rarely well-received when he came to a town, that he didn't have a private jet, that he was probably using these, not Converse, but his feet. Okay? 
And have you ever walked 45 miles? It's a ways. It's a ways to walk. Okay. Um, you'd have to walk around the mall, I don't know how many times, to get 45 miles in. It's, it's a long way. It's a long way. And carrying whatever you need on your back, more than likely, um, not that he had a whole lot to carry on his back, but it wasn't a simple thing. And, and I'm guilty of reading over these experiences and just saying, oh, Paul's in Thessalonica now. Now he's in Philippi. Now he's in Athens. Now he's in Corinth. Now he's here. Now he's there. But it wasn't an easy thing just to get from place to place Plus, the fact that he was typically being chased, hunted maybe even, made it even more difficult. Maybe he was having to travel at night. Maybe he's having to hide in the bushes. Whatever. Sorry, I just had a random political thought. Um, <laughs> I said I was sorry. I can't help myself. Um, so so it, wasn't, it wasn't a simple thing that he moves from town to town. So about 45 miles away is Berea. He goes to Berea, and he again begins to meet with the Jews in the synagogue. So let's look at what is said about the people in Berea. Um, The brothers, this is verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they had arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They were more noble. Why do you suppose they were more noble? Let's find out. (laughs) They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, and not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Okay, so they were noble because they received the word from Paul with a great deal of joy, and then they searched the scriptures to see if what he was saying was true. Did you know that there are people who get up in front of other people and say things that sometimes have nothing to do with the Bible even though they're in church? (laughs) They do. Do you know that sometimes people who get up in front of other people have an agenda of their own that might not be God's agenda? That happens too. Do you know that there are people who get up in front of other people and they just spit out something that they may have read or a video they may have watched about the Bible by someone who's supposed to know a lot more than they are and they didn't have enough time or they run out of initiative or maybe they're just lazy and it was their turn to get up. People do. And so, I'm a person who's getting up in front of other people saying things. Does that mean that what I'm saying is right? Absolutely not. Am I capable of lying? Sometimes. Yes, I am. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. <laughs> Sometimes. That, that, was, that was generous. <laughs> Peter's right, by the way. Sometimes. Um, of course I am. Am I capable of being lazy? Am I capable of, of shirking the responsibility of having an opportunity to come and open the word and talk with you? about it. Of course, I'm susceptible to all of those things. So why would you take my word for whatever I say on a Sunday afternoon? Why, no offense, would you take Marcus's word for it either? 
Or why would you take the word of somebody who you hear on the radio or watch on TV? It says that the Jewish people in the synagogue in Berea were more noble than the Jewish people in Thessalonica because they received the word eagerly and then they went home and cracked the book. They opened the Bible and they said, is this what that means? They were described as noble because they were eager to hear, but they also didn't take his word for it. They checked it out. They went to the source of the authority and they asked, is this true? Is this what you're really telling me, God? And they were described as noble. Do you check it out Sunday afternoon or middle of the week? Do you wonder, why did Marcus say that? I wonder if that's really true. There's nothing wrong with that. You're not going to hurt Marcus's feelings. And since we have the Bible, there was a time when almost nobody had a Bible. Up until the middle part of the 15th century, when the printing press was invented, Bibles were copied by hand. And you had to be pretty rich or have a job near where the Bibles were being copied to even be able to read it. And then it probably wasn't in a a language that you spoke or read. We're fortunate to have the Bible. We're fortunate to be able to go home and check whatever who stood up in front of the people and said whatever they said. Said. We're fortunate. So, if you're in search of nobility, check it out. Check on people when they tell you something. Okay? Um, Now, in Berea, everything's going well. The Jews there are more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica. They're receiving the word gladly. They're checking it out in the Bible to see if it's right. They're searching the scriptures. They're searching. They're digging. They want to know what is true. And what happens? Well, the Jewish people from Thessalonica, who were less noble than the Jewish people in Berea, found out that Paul was in Berea and that everything was going swimmingly. So what did they do? They went to Berea to stop everything from going swimmingly. And soon, Paul's in the same boat in Berea he was in Thessalonica, and he's got to leave town. So he leaves town, this time to Athens, and Athens is probably 140 or 150 miles away from Berea. So another journey. Maybe he scooted to the coast and uh, took a boat down to Athens in the uh, Aegean Sea. Maybe he walked along the coast. I don't know. But he's on the run again because he's being chased by people who say, your problems, you are an unsettling individual. You have dangerous ideas. We don't want you in our town. We don't want your kind around here. Okay? So this is how he lands in Athens. Now, in verse 16, Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked in him as he saw that the city was full of idols. About Athens, there's an ancient proverb that says that there were more gods in Athens than men. This was a city full of little places of tribute. It was full of statues and statuettes. It was full of temples of almost any kind 
and it was full of gods, little g. Um, if you know anything about Greek culture or Greek mythology or Greek literature, you begin to see the myriad uh, figures in Greek culture. There was kind of a god for everything. And their gods uh, were, over time, kind of uh, theoretically placed on Mount Olympus. Okay? And they were gods like people. Not like a god full of mystery that we can't really imagine or understand. Not a God whose people were at one time afraid to speak his name. They revered him so. These were gods with a little g. And there were a lot of them. Okay, so the ancient proverb says more gods than men in Athens. Um, so he is struck immediately. And Paul, his upbringing again, he is a good Jewish man. He knows the commandments. What's the command about God? And other gods. You shall have no other gods before me. Nor should you have craft time and make or create gods. That's a paraphrase. So it's natural then that Paul goes into Athens and he sees gods everywhere. And he's offended. He's unsettled. His spirit is upset. And so this is where he finds himself now. And he goes, he's in a new town, he goes to the synagogue. He goes to the synagogue and he begins to preach about Jesus. He begins to preach the resurrection. And again, probably some people agree with him, some people don't. Then he goes to the marketplace and he talks to people in the marketplace. Paul's familiar with the marketplace because Paul supported himself when he was on the road because remember, he didn't have a private jet and he wasn't being put up in the Hilton and he wasn't taking the stage amidst the roaring, appreciative crowd. He was making his own way for the most part and he made tents. So he was probably very familiar with the marketplace, very familiar with working class people, although that's probably not the, what they were called at that point. But he was able to speak with common people, with working people. So he went to the marketplace and spoke and word began to get around that Paul was in town and that Paul was talking about the things Paul was talking about. And so Athens, everybody's curious. If you start talking about a god, they're not necessarily adverse to you talking about a god because there's hundreds of gods. If you have a new god, then it might be interesting to talk to you about your new god. Maybe it's more enjoyable than the god that you've been worshiping. Maybe you're ready to mix it up a little bit. You'd like a little god variety in your experience. So if somebody's talking about a different god, you're not necessarily going to be angry at them, but you're probably going to want to say, hey, Peter, I heard you were talking about God, Jesus something. Hey, why don't we sit down and talk about it? Let's have some coffee. That's more than likely the reception he got because there were, this was like a huge university of a town. Philosophers, thinkers, which really means talkers, but anyway, that's a conversation for another day. Um, um, so, sure enough, people come to him and they want to have a chat. 
So now we're up to 22. So that's your introduction. So I don't know how long the sermon's going to be, but that's the introduction. That's setting, that's setting up the situation for us. That's just context. So here we go. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So he's saying, I perceive that you're very religious because he's standing, this Areopagus was kind of the, like, almost like the Supreme Court of Athens. It was up on a hill. It was kind of an open-air theater courtroom sort of place. Probably a beautiful place if it weren't for the fact that maybe you were on trial there. You might have enjoyed the views. So we don't really know for sure if Paul was on trial or if that was just kind of a place to go that was out of the noise and the activity of every day. But he found himself in the Areopagus and he's talking to um, these thinkers. Um, And the Bible specifically mentions Epicureans and Stoics. So these are two philosophies that are active in uh, Roman Empire and Greek civilization at the time. And the Epicureans, and these are, this is like super simplification of these philosophies, so um, don't call me on it when you go home and do your research later. So the Epicureans, essentially, if you were to kind of filter down their philosophy, is that the highest good is pleasure. Pleasure should be the end to your means. That's the highest good. And what you don't want is something that gets in the way of that. So any kind of disturbance, any kind of pain, any kind of inconvenience, you don't want that. It's through the Epicurean philosophy and through the Epicurean writings that some of the language that snuck into our Constitution, like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, comes. Okay? So Epicureans may not be an awful lot unlike Americans. Okay? There are some people in this country, certainly, that think pleasure is the greatest good and that that's the end, no matter what the means are. And so there's these people. And they believe that the world was made up of atoms. So there were atoms everywhere. And if there wasn't an atom there, there was a void, an empty space. And that when you died, one of the, one of the ideas established by the Epicureans was that, <clears throat> that you didn't need to be afraid of death because... When you died, those atoms that were making you up weren't making you up anymore. So you wouldn't even be aware that you were dead. So what's the big deal? right, so interesting philosophy. But you can see how um, a faith system or Paul's preaching that deals with both the importance of life and death, that deals with our current experience and our experience in the afterlife, might not be something that gelled really well with somebody who says, oh, dying's not a big deal because you'll never know what's going on anyway. So Epicureans were some of the people that said, hey, Paul, let's go up on the hill and have a chat. We'd like to hear you out. The other people were the Stoics. And again, a gross oversimplification of Stoics is that they feel like there's um, wisdom and reason and logic to be found in nature and natural laws. So the goal is to kind of live in harmony with the logic and the cosmic reason uh, found in nature. And so again, not a group of ideas that's alien to our experience now. Uh, Athens, um, in, in general, 
was not a place where people believed in a specific god. They believed in all the gods. And it was important to worship the gods. A lot of times people would have uh, sort of specific spirits that they would worship in their home. And then other gods that they might worship out and about at the various shrines or temples uh, where they found opportunity to worship. So the idea of gods wasn't alien to them, but the idea of one god that trumped all the other gods was kind of an odd idea. And so they were teaching philosophy and religion more as a system um, than, than faith or belief that would have necessarily an impact on your life. So Paul says... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I find also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath, and everything. So he finds this temple, or this, um, this altar, to the unknown God. And he begins, this is his segue into, you know what, I think you guys are interested in religion. There's gods everywhere. There's statuettes and, and larger statues and temples and shrines and everywhere. All I see is gods. So I'm guessing that you're pretty religious. Has he offended them yet? Nope, not yet. Way to go, Paul. (laughs) He hasn't offended them yet. So, (laughs) yet. So, um, this is where he starts. He finds a point of relatability with them and says, you're interested in God. You're religious. I'm interested in God too. But I saw this altar to the unknown God. And so... I want to tell you about this unknown God. I'm going to tell you who the unknown God that you worship is. Now, that altar of the unknown God was probably kind of an attempt on the part of the Athenians to sort of cover their behind when it came to worship. Because if there was a God that existed that they hadn't named or hadn't built a shrine to or hadn't constructed an altar to, they wanted to make sure that none of the gods were left out of the worship circle. So this was kind of an altar to the God in case there's one that's been left out, okay? Um, And this is the opportunity that Paul seizes on. Um, But let's stop and ask a question real quick. This this altar to the unknown God provokes in me an interesting question. Do we know the God we report as our God? Do we know the God that we worship? really know the God that we worship. Um, There have been parts of my life, my earlier life, where I was taught a lot of things and they came out of my first culture, my family, and I was told they were true and I believed them, I guess, and I got in line and I stepped I marched to that drummer. And there was a time in my life, certainly, when I began to rethink those things, when they became mine. 
other times in my life when they became much more deeply mine. The times when those truths, my beliefs, my faith became much more deeply mine were those times when I was drowning and gasping for air in my own circumstance. Circumstances that more likely than not I committed, I mean I created for myself. But there is this cultural idea of, of God and at least historically our, our American culture has promoted the idea of God, the creator and, and Christianity. But sometimes that makes it easy for us to fall into kind of a cultural practice that may or may not mean much to us in our spirit, in our real lives day to day. So I think it's a question that is good to ask ourselves. Is God known to you? Is your God known to you? Or just trying to make sure that God's not left out of your life? It's a fair question. So Paul's message then begins with, and I want to read this real quickly out of the message because I love, love, love the language of this. Um, So Paul took his stand in the open space at the Areopagus and laid it out for them. It's plain to see that you Athenians take your religion seriously When I arrived here the other day, I was fascinated with all the shrines I came across. And then I found one inscribed, To the God nobody knows. I'm here to introduce you to this God so you can worship intelligently, know who you're dealing with. The God who made the world and everything in it, this master of sky and land, doesn't live in custom-made shrines or need the human race to run errands for him as if he couldn't take care of himself. He takes the creatures... I mean, he makes the creatures. The creatures don't make him. Starting from scratch, he made the entire human race and made the earth hospitable with plenty of time and space for living so we could seek after God and not just grope around in the dark, but actually find him. He doesn't play hide-and-seek with us. He's not remote. He's near. We live and move in him. Can't get away from him. One of your poets said it well. We are the God created. Well, if we're the God created, it doesn't make a lot of sense to think we could hire a sculptor to chisel a God out of stone for us, does it? God overlooks it as long as you don't know any better, but that time is past. The unknown is now known, and he's calling for a radical life change. He has set a day when the entire human race will be judged and everything set right, and he has already appointed the judge, confirming him before everyone by raising him from the dead. At the phrase, raising him from the dead, the listeners split. Some laughed at him and walked off making jokes. Others said, let's do this again. We want to hear more. But that was it for the day. And Paul left. There were still others that turned out who were convinced then and there and stuck with Paul. Among them, Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris. So... Paul is saying, God is the creator. We are not the creator. And later when he talks about repentance, this is, this is I think, the central idea to what he's saying. God made us. We didn't make him. And he's saying this in the middle of a place, in the middle of 
a, a cultural environment um, in which people are constructing little gods all the time. And they're making gods, little gods that look like them or have some qualities that they can relate to and live on the mountain that they can all see when they get up in the morning and stretch, do their yoga, all right? So they're, they're making gods instead of allowing it to be the other way around. And this backwardness, this reverse of what's real, this reverse of what's true is what will be their downfall. And so Paul says, I want to tell you who the unknown God is. It's the God who made everything. God doesn't need us to build him a house. He doesn't need us to run errands for him. He doesn't need us for anything, really. He made us. And he made the world and everything we see. And he made in the world enough time and space for us to wander around and find him. And so the second thing that Paul says beyond God as creator is that God gives us a longing and an opportunity to know him. He said there's time and space for you to look and to find. And if you look, you will find. This is a pretty simple message by Paul so far, isn't it? God made everything. You didn't. And when God made everything, he made a beautiful environment that we can wander around in and search for him and find him. And he's put a longing in our hearts to do so. And then finally, he says, God provides the way to him. And that way is Jesus. The resurrected Jesus. And he calls for repentance. And the repentance he's calling for is this idea we just talked about 30 seconds ago that says, oh, we'll make God in our image. We'll have craft time and make a God that we like. Someone that we can relate to. Someone that we can keep close by on our mantelpiece, on Mount Olympus, wherever. So we can experience God in the way that we understand. We don't want a God of mystery. We want a God that we understand totally. And this is, this is the number one thing that we as a human race have to repent of. The idea that God made us. We didn't make him. That there's only one God and I'm not it. That's the first truth we confront. And if we don't, if we don't get past that, we're not in very good shape. So that's a simple sermon that Paul gives. But I want to just say a few more things about Paul's approach. Again, when I was growing up, I've spent a great deal of time in my life in the church. Good churches, well-meaning churches. I learned a lot of really good foundational truth in my life. And yet one of the things that, that I struggled with um, almost my whole life was this idea that we're supposed to be witnessing to other people all the time. We're supposed to be preaching. We're supposed to be converting people, getting them saved and baptized and added to the kingdom like we read about in the Bible. And there are all sorts of programs and things that I went through, um, some kind of eagerly, a lot of them really reluctantly because they just scared me. And I thought how uncomfortable those, those programs made me. And I looked at Paul and what Paul did when he was preaching in the synagogue or in the marketplace or in the middle of this outdoor courtroom was that he just simply told them about his life. He told them about his past and about his present and about his future. And I have a past and I have a present and I have a future. 
And that's what I have to tell. Okay? And so he said, look, I was born and I was, I came up as a Jew with some privilege and fantastic educational benefits. And I rose through the ranks and I became a Pharisee. And I was a Pharisee's Pharisee. I was good. I was good. And I enjoyed the status and the power and the authority and the influence that came with that. That's his past. But I was wrong. And to show me that I was wrong, God struck me down in the middle of the road and blinded me to make me come to my senses. And so now, all I do is go around and tell people about it. From town to town, to town, to town, to prison, to town, to prison, to town, to boat, to town. And I tell people about it. That's my present. That's what I do now. And my future... I've been accepted into God's kingdom. And so that's my future. Whether I'm alive or whether I'm dead, I'm with God. And I'll always be with God. That's his story. And that's, in essence, all he was saying. When he went from Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea to Athens and everywhere else that he went, he's just telling his story. That's not complicated. I don't need to be taught how to tell my story. The other thing he didn't do was that he wasn't a salesman. He didn't sell and he didn't close. As I think back about some of these programs that I went through, you had to, you know, if I come and I knock on Doug's door, Doug, how would you feel if I knocked on your door and you answered a complete stranger looking like this? I got one of my button shirts on today, a nice one. And I said, sir, if you were to die today, do you know that you'd go to heaven? How'd you feel about that? <laughs> uncomfortable. <laughs> I'd be uncomfortable too. Asking you the question. And I'm I'm not I'm not trying to be rude or or hypercritical, but you know, these these programs, you know, the first step was that you gotta convince a person that they're lost. You gotta convince them that they're in a desperate state. And how do you do that? You judge them. The very thing the Bible says is don't do and don't be because it's not your job. You judge them to get them lost. And then, having established that they're lost and desperate and drowning and that, thank God, you're on their doorstep, you can begin to take them through your, your pitch, whether it's the Romans Road or whatever it is. Chick tracks. Chick tracks. And, you know, Paul, Paul would say there's nothing wrong with Romans. I know. Um, and there isn't. But to, to show up in a stranger's experience and to mug them, to mug them for Jesus, felt an odd thing to me. And a lot of these programs, when they said, look, once you get them lost, they're on the ropes, you've got to close the deal. It's a salesman's mentality, salesperson's mentality. You've got to close the deal. And if you close the deal, I guess great. If you don't close the deal, what happens? Will Doug ever, ever open his door again if I'm on his porch 
if I didn't close the deal the first time? No. Not unless he has a gun in his hand or something like that. <laughs> he won't. And so it's done. And this, this sales mentality, this sell the product, close the deal, suggests that God isn't capable of closing the deal himself. That I have to do it if it's going to be done. So I can mark it down in my book and I can go report it to my church who can report it to the domination, who can do whatever they do with it. Okay? But, again... Back to the Bible, it says somebody plants a seed, somebody waters, and God gives the increase. If that seed's going to grow, it's because God grows it. And again, there's one God. I am not him. So all I'm asked to do is to Johnny Appleseed my way through life, slinging seeds. Everybody remember that book? That's what I'm supposed to do. Johnny Appleseed never, this is odd to bring Johnny Appleseed in at this point, but he never planted a seed and stood, stood over it and said, grow, grow. You're never going to be a big tree unless you grow. He didn't do that. He threw out the seeds and he kept walking. I used to love that book. I thought that would be cool, just walking around the country, nothing else to do but throw seeds out of a bag. What a life. That's kind of the life we're called to. To plant seeds and to go and to say, God, please, please help that seed to grow. And I'm just going to go. Paul wasn't selling. He wasn't closing the deal. And this, this thing that was going on, it was not a program. It was just Paul telling his story, but being persistent about it. It was Paul telling his story if he was well-received. It was Paul telling a story if he wasn't very well received. It was Paul telling a story if he landed in jail. It was Paul telling a story if he went over to somebody's house and they had, you know, beans and cornbread. No matter what, it was Paul telling his story. And it was Paul trusting God that having planted the seed, God was then in charge of it. And if it was going to grow, it was going to be because God grew it. So, you know, I'm not impressed with Paul because he had a formula to get people saved. I'm impressed with Paul because he was persistent. Because there were people lined up to kick his butt every time he came to town. And he did the same thing everywhere he went. He preached Jesus and he preached the resurrection. And he didn't compromise and he didn't back down. And read the book of Acts. Read what happened. It's crazy. He just did what God asked him to do. And he never gave up. We can do that. We can do that. You know, his life, when his life changed, his life became being a Christian. All right? And we're all, you know, whatever we are. Sales clerks or teachers or librarians or business people or stockbrokers or whatever we all are. We're that. But if Christianity is just fitting into our life, if we're just giving it a sliver, if we're giving it a place, or a day of the week, or some hours in the evening, then we're probably not going to be able to do what Paul did. Well, I can't talk about that where I work. Some places you can't talk about it where you work. But you can still talk about it where you work. Most people, if you have a conversation with them, 
What was the book, what was the passage out of First Peter that we read? Be ready always to give an answer when someone asks you the reason for the faith that is in you, and give them the answer with meekness and with gentleness. If my life is obviously enough Christian, somebody's going to ask me. And people ask me stuff all the time, not because I'm a super Christian, but because I really try to live my faith. I try to get it from my heart out to my fingertips. And so they say, hey, what do you think about this? Or, hey, Ron, you go to church. What do you think about this? Or all the time it happens. And when somebody asks you a question, you're free to answer the question. Be gentle with them and answer the question. And we have, we have chances to do this all the time. And now, I'm not afraid to talk to somebody because it's just my life, just my past and my present and my future. And some of my past is hilarious. Some of it's hilariously tragic. But, you know, when that hilariously tragic stuff happened to me and I came out of it by God's grace, I said, God, this is all on the table now. And God has used me more just to talk to people one-on-one in the last five years of my life than he ever did before, including the times when I was in the pulpit every Sunday for nine years in a church. Because I'm more honest now. And it's simple. It's just simple. And telling my story, there's no way I can put on airs anymore. There's no way I'll let anybody say, oh, you're a reverend. Dude, don't do that. No, no. I'm just his child. So I want to encourage you to know the God that you've put your faith in. And I want to encourage you that this is so easy. That this isn't a a special day or a special time. It's not a program. It's not a formula. If you know what your past looked like, before God and you know what your present looks like with God and you know what your future is with God that's your story and if you can tell that and if you can tell that gently and if you can resist the urge to control the transaction God will use it God will use it look what he did in the book of Acts with Paul that's one person out of millions that have done the same thing Look at what God did. Father, please encourage us through your word. Please give us strength and um, God, just help us to sort out what we're doing. That um, there's a big, big difference between me fitting my faith into my life and my faith being my life. And so I, I just pray that you will give me strength and you'll give me courage to just be my faith in whatever environment I am, whatever I'm doing, and that you would cause the questions to come, that you would open the doors, and that I would just simply be willing to tell my story honestly and to give you credit, to give you credit for all of it. In Jesus' name. Amen.